your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Phil Birnbaum. Phil is the editor of By the Numbers, the Sabermetrics publication of the Society for American Baseball Research, and co-editor of the eighth edition of Total Baseball. He blogs at Sabermetric Research. Phil, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Now, you've written some really interesting blog posts on inequality, and what caught my eye was the fact that they aren't really about the research on inequality, but on how to think about the statistically-based claims we hear in the newspapers every day. And so what I wanted to talk about is um, how those of us who aren't experts in statistics should approach these sorts of claims, what Mm -hmm. sorts of questions we should be asking. Okay. But uh, first, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in this particular issue? Sure. Um, um, I guess I've always been interested in uh, baseball and statistics. And in the early 80s, when uh, uh, Bill James came out with his baseball abstracts, where he um, analyzed uh, baseball statistics and tried to figure out what was really going on, I I got hooked and I started to do some baseball and sports research uh, myself. And I I started the blog. And uh, after I started the blog, I noticed that a lot of the issues that come up when you know, you're analyzing baseball statistics or talking about what sportscasters say on the air during a baseball game or during a football game. The same kinds of things seem to be happening in just the news in general and on the op-ed pages. So I got interested in in uh, looking at some of those claims, too. And that's what uh, led me to this uh, inequality uh, discussion. So let's move to kind of one of the most common sorts of claims we hear in this debate. And um, this one is from the New York Times, summing up a Federal Reserve report on inequality that you write about. Right. And uh, here's the quote from the Times. For the most affluent 10% of American families, average incomes rose by 10% from 2010 to 2013. Now, um, how would you say most readers would interpret that statement, but, and how should we interpret it? Well, as it's as it's written, what it's saying is what it seems to be saying is that if you find the uh, the ten uh, percent of families with the highest incomes in two thousand ten, and look at where they were in two thousand thirteen, on average they were ten percent higher income. That's what the statement actually says. Um, if you look at the Fed, if you look at the Federal Reserve report itself, that's that's actually not what it says. What it is saying is that if you look at the top 10% in 2013, and then look back on the top 10% in 2010, the 2013 are 10% higher. But they are not looking at the same individuals or families. They're looking at two different top 10%. Yeah, and so I, w- I want to talk a little bit about that because that's that's a big deal, and you give a really wonderful baseball analogy <laughs> for this in your post. I wonder if you could recap that. Uh, sure, it's um, it's uh, what I said was something like uh, it turns out that the uh, Oakland A's this year won more games than the Oakland A's did 30 years ago, but that doesn't mean that the Oakland A's of 1984 are better baseball players now than they were then. Uh, because after all, that's not true. They're you know in their 50s and 60s now, and they and they can't play major league baseball at all. So what's happening is that uh, you're, if you if when you look at how the team changed, you have to keep in mind that the individuals within the team are not the same individuals. 
Yeah, because what we're interested in is what's happening to real life specific individuals over time. Are their lives getting better? Are they getting worse? And what I take you to be saying is that individuals can all be getting better off even if the data suggests that their that their group is falling behind because those groups, whether it's the rich or the poor, or the bottom or the top 10%, are not necessarily the same people. Right. I mean, there's there's really two different questions there. There's how are the individuals, as you say, how are the individuals doing over time and, and how are the groups doing over time? And for the individuals, um, sure, it could be that uh, it could be that the uh, that uh, even though uh, it looks like the rich uh, are 10 percent, uh, have 10 percent higher incomes now, it could be that that they actually dropped. It is logically possible that between 2010, 2013, the poor became richer than the rich and the rich became poorer than the poor and they kind of switched places. And that is is perfectly logically consistent with, with the Fed data. I'm not saying that that's what happened. Obviously, you know, I don't think that's what happened at all. But there are many different possibilities of how people moved around within the groups or households moved around within the groups. And you can't really tell just from that data how how any groups of specific individuals have done. Yeah. And so just to make a distinction, you know, if we had on somebody who was embedded in this research, they might be ever able to tell us, well, it is mostly the same people, or they might be able to tell us as um, you know, sometimes happens. Well, a lot of people end up in the top 10% one year because they sell a business or realize capital gains, but it's kind of a one-time thing. But I think the point is for our listeners that though that you need to be able to ask those questions and realize when you're just given these kind of blanket statements, they don't necessarily tell you a lot about what's actually happening in the world. Exactly. Um, um, just to, to clarify one point, the, the Fed uh, study did ask people about their usual income. So I think what they tried to do is leave out the one-time capital gains and such. But even so, yes, the fact is that people move around a lot um, in their in their lives from from different levels of income to different levels of income. I moved when I graduated from school. I moved from zero to roughly a middle-class salary, and people are doing that all the time. And, you know... Uh, if you follow the individual specifically or the household specifically, you can see what's going on. But yeah, if you just uh, if you just look at the groups, you have really no idea how groups are moving, which is really what what it is that that most people are interested in knowing. So let me read a uh, quote from your blog post, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll link to this in the show notes for people. But okay. you say, "quote The argument inequality is growing, therefore we must be unfairly favoring the rich," is not a valid one. It's true that right. inequality is growing, and it might be true that we are unfairly favoring the rich, but the one doesn't follow from the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bottom line here is that if we only look at data about what's happening to groups and their share of income, we can't necessarily conclude anything about what's happening to real-life individuals. That's exactly right. As I said, it could be that all the rich got poor and all the poor got rich, and that's perfectly consistent with the data. Um, what we really have have no way of knowing what's going on. One thing we can say, and it is it is mathematically, it has to be mathematically true that if the top group rose ten percent, then if you look at the top group, the 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 rich, you might want to call them in two thousand and ten. If you look at their change from two thousand and ten to two thousand and thirteen, it must be less than ten percent. As long as there is any movement in and out of the top group the 10% has to be an overestimate. It is not possible for it to be an underestimate. So we have no idea really how 
what the rich have done in the last uh, in the last three years. But we do know it must be less than 10 percent and it could be substantially less than 10 percent. It could be in the negatives if they all became poor. We don't know. So um, let's tackle this idea from a different angle. And back in 2009, you wrote a blog post on the Gini coefficient which is the standard measurement for inequality that most uh, people in the field use. Right. And here's what you write. You say the stated or unstated assumption is that more inequality is worse and more equality is better. I don't think that's true. Rather, I think that rising inequality can indeed be worse, but it can also be neutral or it might actually be a sign of improvement for everyone. Right. Now, in the post, you list more than 30 ways that this might be so, and I'm not going <laughs> to make you go through the entire right. list. Um and but I do want to highlight a few of them because I think it illustrates a, a lot of the, the the thinking points that are critical for this debate. But first, can you just give kind of a brief indication of what we mean by the Gini coefficient? Sure, the Gini coefficient is just uh, is just one way. I'm sure there's many, but one way of measuring inequality of of say income, and uh, it's just a, a mathematical construct, and it's uh, it's built in such a way that zero percent means perfect equality, where where everybody earns the same income. In effect, zero inequality, and 100 percent is uh, is perfect inequality, where one person gets all the income and everybody else gets zero. So all it is is it's basically you know somewhere from zero percent to 100 percent. As, a, as an arbitrary measure of inequality. And it's, it's fine. I mean, one, to me, one measure is probably almost as good as, as another. Yeah, so um, the, to kind of now drill down into this idea that mm -hmm. we can't draw much conclusions from the mere fact of a given level of inequality, um, the first point I want to raise is actually the fifth point in your post, which I think is really profound and... Uh, okay. I've never heard anybody raise this question, but I think it's the the right question. Namely, mm -hmm. what's the right value of the Gini coefficient? What should right. it be? Can you explain why you think that's an important question? Uh, sure. I, I think that uh, the Gini coefficient is kind of an exception to most of the measurements we use in our lives for other things. Um, for instance, let's say we want to uh, talk about um, average income in general. Where do we want that to be? Well, we want that to be as high as possible. We don't need to, to pick a target. We, we know high, higher is better. For some things, lower is better. Say uh, infant mortality, we want lower is better and our target is zero. We know where we're going. Um, for a lot of other things, it's it's neither higher is better nor lower is better, but there's a target. Uh, body temperature, we want that to be, you know, 98.6. You know, if it's too high, it's a problem. If it's too low, it's a problem. But for the Gini coefficient, we, you know, I, I, it's not necessarily true that higher is better. It's not necessarily true that lower is better. And we don't know where, it, where we want it to be. We certainly don't want it to be at zero. At zero means no inequality at all. It means people who work part-time make as much money as people who work full-time. And, you know, nobody wants that. Nobody wants, um, uh, you know, uh, baristas to be making as much as doctors. Even, even, the, uh, even the biggest proponents of inequality don't, don't, you know, aren't going to go that far. So we don't want zero. And obviously we don't want 100. We don't want, you know, one guy, you know, having all the income and everybody else starving. So we don't want zero and we don't want 100. So where do we want it? I, I've never heard anybody say, you know, we should shoot for a target of, of 36.2 and here's why. I've never heard anybody, you know, uh, uh, compare the ones of different countries and talk about uh, which one is, is it, what the numbers actually mean in terms of, of quality of life or how you get to that point. What we have basically is people, is some people who say, um, it's gone up. That's obviously bad, which implies that it's too high now or it was too high. 
because that's the only way you can know that that the increase is a bad thing. But we don't really know where we want it. I've never heard anybody talk about uh, what kind of inequality is, is what level of inequality is appropriate and, and, and what isn't. And, and and I think that kind of relates to the next point, which is that what the Gini coefficient is concerned with, just to emphasize, is differences in income or differences in wealth, right. not the absolute amount of income or wealth that exists. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. For instance, uh, one thing I'm, I, I found out when I was writing my blog post is Albania has a Gini that's uh, uh, that's much lower than that of, of the United States. They have a lot more equality, but the the average income is only one eighth of, of what it is in in, in the U.S. So, um, is that is that a, a good trade off? I think most people, even even those who are worried about inequality, would say no. We don't want everybody to take a, a an eighty seven percent pay cut uh, just so we can achieve a little bit more uh, equality in incomes. So really, when you talk about inequality, you're, you're, um, you're, you're talking about it. it. It seems to be that people just assume that everything else is held constant. And um, what, we, what we really, in my opinion, what we should be concerned about is even if we are concerned about inequality, we also have to be concerned about the absolute level of income. We want to keep, we want, you know, we want to be more and more prosperous even as we increase equality if that's what we want. But uh, that doesn't get mentioned much. Yeah, and I think people should be called to be fully clear on what they want because although it's true that most people, certainly, you know, most you're, you're from Canada, most Canadians, yes. most Americans, they're fundamentally concerned with, in absolute terms, how well people are doing. Uh -huh. Many of the intellectuals I've found um, come from a perspective of egalitarianism, and they really do hold that it's better that we be poor and equal rather than richer and unequal. And I think p they need to state that openly and, and take a real stand because I think uh, uh, the argument becomes a lot less persuasive to, the, to most uh, people if, right. it, it, if that's really explicitly their view. Right. Uh, I would argue that not only should they take a stand that that's what they're arguing, but they should, you know, give some idea of how much of a reduction in wealth they're willing to accept for a certain amount of of reduction in, in inequality. It's not enough to say, well, we're we're okay uh, being less rich if we're more equal. It's you you also have to say how much and how you're going to get there. Yeah, I think that's really important. Now, um, some people would reply that. Well, look, we can because we haven't seen a lot of economic growth, whether they say it's over the last decade or over the last 30 years mm -hmm. um, or so, they say, well, given that fact, uh, if inequality is increasing, if the Gini coefficient is going up, then changes in relative income have to mean that people at the bottom are doing worse. Now, we've talked a little bit about why you can't necessarily leap to that conclusion um, but I wonder if you can give some, explain a little bit why that doesn't even follow necessarily. Right. Um, well, um, there are lots of, um, lots of examples you can put together of how that doesn't follow. The one I mentioned earlier was if the rich and poor switched places, um, you know, the, the, the Gini wouldn't change at all. Um, and, and the, the Fed report that, uh, uh, showed that, that the, rich in 2013 are richer than the rich in 2010. That would still apply even if the rich were getting worse and the, and the, and the poor were getting richer. Um, another possible example, which might be a little bit more realistic, is that um, what if we suppose that, uh, that, that 
you know, everybody's income increased 10% in that time. But what happened is there were uh, there was a certain amount of immigration in those three years. And those uh, immigrants came to the United States and took minimum wage jobs and wound up at the bottom. And they wound up earning the same uh, wages as the immigrants did three years ago, but they're different people. So what happened is even though uh, the Gini would have increased, it looks like inequality increases, it looks like the rich are richer than they were before, what happened is everybody is richer than they were before, including the immigrants who may have come from countries where where uh, wages are very low and where uh, minimum wage is in, in the United States is more than they could you know, ever hope to earn uh, in the country they came from. So everybody is better off, but inequality appears to increase. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, just to make sure that everybody's clear on it. I mean, mm-hmm. think about I, I think about it as if, you know, you have three people sitting in a room, one making 10,000, one making 100,000 and one making a million. Mm-hmm. And uh, then suddenly, let's say that you um, their incomes all double and then you add into the room a new immigrant a person making five thousand dollars. Right. It seems inequality's gone way up and that that would mm-hmm. be a bad thing. And yet everybody is richer uh, and all you've done is add somebody who's dragging down the the uh, uh, the statistics of what's happening overall in the room. Right, and 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 actually, uh, inequality has has increased, and that's one example where increasing equality in, increasing inequality might actually be an example of of desirable social change, because. Um, you know, I mean, the spread between the lowest and highest is is bigger than it was before. But you have uh, you have introduced somebody into the room who was uh, who really wanted to get into the room and was doing worse outside the room than inside the room. And that's you know that both is a good thing and causes inequality to rise. Uh, not not doesn't cause inequality just to appear to to rise in the United States. It actually causes inequality to to literally rise. And in that case, it's a good thing. Uh, another factor you bring up in your post, and this is really interesting, and I don't think I've ever heard this before either, um, was the fact that not all the gains that we get living in a, a in a in a prosperous economy show up as economic growth necessarily. Um, right. So the example can you give an example about you know somebody curing cancer? Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell people about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was I was listing examples uh, like the one about the, that you mentioned about the new immigrant into the room. Examples of how inequality could increase, but but everybody would be in favor of it. And the example I gave is if uh, if somebody comes up with a cure for cancer and becomes a, a multi billionaire because of it, inequality goes up. But but we are all much 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 better off by being able to have our cancer cured. And a lot of the increase in inequality uh, comes from things like that, things that are not, you know, measured in, in you know, gross national product, um, but they're, they're you know, uh, wonderful um, benefits to quality of life. And the one I use just when I think of it myself is I think of the iPad. Um, I know that uh, I know that Apple shareholders have become, you know, rich off the iPad, but uh, I don't mind. I am happy to uh, to use the iPad. The iPad has has, you know, uh, changed my life for the better quite a bit, and uh, I am happy that inequality increased if it means that I now have an iPad. Um, you Not also, the same as cancer. Not the same as a cure for cancer, but, you know. Yeah, but it's, uh, and, and there are economists who have started recently pointing out the limitations of things like GDP in terms of what is it actually measuring, how much 
uh, of actual gains is it capturing, particularly today when it's not that we're turning out more steel, but we're creating new ways for people to communicate and keep in touch and, you know, uh, things that are very, very hard to measure. And right. so um, you can't leap from the fact that some uh, monetary measure that doesn't tell you everything about what's been happening. I mean, the fact is that whether or not wages have stagnating, and we've had guests on such as Scott Winship who have disputed that in various ways, mm-hmm. there's no question that life has gotten way better in the last 30 years for most right. people. I mean, it, it, we live in an amazing world where you and I right now can talk in two different countries um, for basically zero cost right. uh, thanks to things that didn't exist a while ago and yet probably don't show up in these sorts of numbers. Absolutely. And another thing, too, I mean, if you want to uh, if you want to look at quality of life issues instead of just uh, raw uh, gross income numbers is uh, the the normal uh, measures of inequality, the Gini coefficient usually applies to pre-tax income. But um, high income earners are taxed uh, much more heavily than than low income earners. And that money is used for government services that benefit everybody. So if you were to, you know, add the value of those government services to to rich and poor alike, you would find a a much lower level of inequality. If you're going to, um, if you're going to tax, uh, you know, the, the the rich and create public libraries and everybody uses the public libraries, then it, you know, if you really want to look at quality of life, you have to add the value of the the, the public library to the uh, to the quality of life that the lowest quintile gets, and you have to also add it to the to the quality of life that the richest quintile gets. But you also have to subtract from the rich the taxes that they paid to provide the public libraries. So if you include government services, you're going to get a Gini coefficient that's much lower than the one that uh, is based on gross income. You also have a few different sorts of examples that show how one of the major things that impacts inequality, whether it's of income but definitely of wealth um, is the personal choices that people make and that all sorts of different personal choices regarding what jobs to take how much to save radically change people's economic outcomes in ways that may often be perfectly either as you say neutral or even desirable can you give one or two examples of that well, um, the obvious example is that uh, that uh, some parents uh, choose to to work and uh, and use daycare uh, to take care of their kids while while they're at work, and some uh, choose to stay home. And uh, if you have two identical families and they make two different choices, what you're going to see is you're going to see that they have uh, unequal incomes, but really they're in exactly the same situation, and the difference in incomes is just uh, based on the on the choice that each of them made. And if it, what you're doing, if you're if you're assuming that that inequality of income measures quality of life instead of just measuring income, uh, you also you have to take into account that the that the stay-at-home mom or the stay-at-home dad is gaining a, a benefit, a quality of life benefit from staying at home that's that's at least equal to the salary they would have made otherwise they wouldn't have made that choice. So that's just one obvious example that 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 we see in our in our day-to-day life of 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 how we can rationally choose to have you know lower incomes even though we are in the same equal situation in terms of choices yeah the other one i really like and i forget which post of yours this is from but uh it it may be this one we're talking about now but you know if you have two people making identical incomes but one person is saving you know a significant amount each year at right you know over the course of their lives they're gonna one is gonna end up by all accounts incredibly wealthy and the other right. person basically will be relying on, let's say, social security. 
and the argument that you know it's unfair we should tax this really wealthy person in order to provide benefits for this for the person who doesn't have any wealth uh is actually enormously unjust it's well in 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 one way it's it's backwards because i mean both people had the choice of of when they when they earn the money whether to spend it or whether to save it and what happens is that the uh, one person decides to spend it on a cruise and enjoys the cruise, and the other person would like to go on the cruise but saves it instead. And 40 years later, what you're doing is you're taking wealth from the person who didn't get to go on the cruise, and you're giving it to the person who did get to go on the cruise so they can go on a second cruise. So in a certain sense, um, when you do it that way, you're, you're, you're creating more inequality in actual consumption and quality of life, even though you're creating more equality on paper in terms of wealth. Um, yeah, so I wonder if you can then just kind of give any general advice for laymen as we try to make sense of statistical claims. I think this one basic rule of remember that we're trying to think about the real well-being of individuals and that that is right. something that's uh, definitely doesn't show up in all data, but sometimes is hard to is unlikely to show up in any data but i wonder if you have any further thoughts on what kinds of questions we should be asking ourselves and asking experts uh as we try to understand this issue um it's actually a tough question uh in in, in to answer in general on you know uh, t tips for how best to evaluate statistical claims i think uh, statistical claims are just a subset of all claims in general i think you have to use the same uh, uh you know critical um thinking that you do when you uh, read, say, an, an op-ed that, you know, makes the same argument just, just in plain words. Um, in this case, I think you could, I mean, you could make the same argument without numbers. The, the argument I made about the Oakland A's not being the same people, that has no numbers in it at all. But I like to think that it, it, it states, uh, it states the, the problem with the Fed report fairly um, understandably. So I don't have any real... Uh, specific advice on how to uh, how to interpret statistical claims in general because there are so many things that can go wrong but one thing that, that you said that is very important is that when you're looking at a statistic or when somebody is throwing numbers around make sure that you understand what that is measuring um, in this case for instance what the Fed was measuring is is groups of different people and when you understand that they're measuring groups of different people then you get an idea of what's really going on and why, say, that New York Times quote, why that isn't really true. Um, in a lot of cases, too, the statistics that you see are um, necessarily imprecise approximations of what they're really trying to, to measure, not because of just statistical error in the data or sampling error, but because it's impossible to measure quality of life. For And, and what we do is we have, you know, GDP or incomes, and we use that as a proxy for quality of life because that's as close as we can get. But what you have to do is keep in mind that just because we use those numbers to represent quality of life does not mean that they actually accurately measure quality of life in an unbiased way in all cases. And one uh, approach is to look at it when somebody uses GDP as a measure of quality of life, look at it and think, well, in, in what ways does GDP not measure quality of life? And then you will easily come up, you know, with the with the daycare example and with with uh, some people choose to have children and some people choose to save and that leads to differences. And you'll you'll see that that the, the number does not really mean what 
people are assuming that it means. And that is probably one of the most important things is be aware of what each number is actually measuring, not what it appears to be measuring. Another a question kind of uh, from a totally different perspective occurs to me, which is, uh -huh. do you have a view of how um, how accurately both take two different groups, the media and, say, economists, do you have a view of how well they actually do statistics? Set aside how they communicate them, but just how well they actually uh, process them. I think that the uh, media uh, process statistics certainly know better than they process other arguments. I'm sure that both of us and everybody listening has picked up a newspaper and read an opinion piece or, or seen something on TV that they thought had an obvious logical fallacy and how did that ever get into print? How did this person ever believe that when you can explain in one sentence why that is obviously factually or, or logically incorrect? And that certainly extends into statistical arguments and I would say it's a little worse because um, you know, statistics are used to bolster an argument, which is which may or which may be faulty, and also uh, statistics can be misinterpreted on top of that. So, when you see in the media an argument about statistics, I would say a higher proportion of them are going to be uh, flawed than the same kinds of arguments that don't include statistics. But your uh, estimation of how well the media use statistics should be. Um, not all that far from your estimation of how the media uh, process uh, other arguments at the same time. Yeah, I, 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 it always disturbs me the stories that have been written where I've been an insider and mm -hmm. know the facts. Uh, and I don't think this is often usually malicious, but they're just, they get so much wrong. E right. Even very simple things that it disturbs me a little bit to think yeah. how uh, how truthfully I take Every, all the stories that I read where I'm not an insider. Actually, I've, uh, I've uh, thought the same thing, that, um, you know, I'll read the paper and everything seems fine, and then I read, uh, I read an article of something that I know, uh, on a subject that I know something about, and, uh, and they, they, just, they just don't get it at all. And, uh, you know, statistics just add a layer of that on top of what's already there. My guest today has been Phil Birnbaum. Phil, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thank you for having me. So the basic lesson that I came away with from this podcast was that inequality statistics are really hiding very different underlying realities and indeed tell us virtually nothing about the underlying realities. And yet that's what we care about. What we care about is what's happening to real life individuals and why. And so l treating the question as what's happening with inequality throws us off of that. It makes it harder to see what's happening and harder to arrive at the cause. And when there's problems, harder to reach real valuable conclusions. And I think this is true more broadly. Notice that the left tries to put every issue today virtually under the umbrella of inequality, whether it's environmental issues, health care, uh, education, incomes, jobs, finance, banking regulations, all of it were asked to see through the lens of inequality. And there's a reason why they want to do this. And this was really the theme of a podcast that we did a while back with Yaron Brook on inequality. As Yaron argued, the goal of the left 
is to get us to think in terms of inequality because that embeds a certain philosophic context in people's minds. If Even if you think you're a supporter of free markets and want to support free markets, if your question is what's happening with inequality in all these spheres, what you're really doing is you're accepting a framework not of individualism but of collectivism where we're taught to think not in terms of individuals and their freedom to pursue their goals but in terms of groups and the relationship between groups. What's happening between the 99% and the 1%, the rich and the poor? The fact is that it is wrong, it is a logical error to group together problems in education, problems in healthcare, problems in finance under the umbrella of inequality. I mean, the the whole idea that what's gone wrong, because what it leads you to think is what's gone wrong in all these problems is that some people have a lot of money and the solution is, well, we'll solve all these problems by taking a bunch of money from people, which is in effect what the less argument is that somehow education, healthcare, and so on would be better if only there weren't so many wealthy people out there. And that is just a bizarre argument, and yet it becomes plausible once we accept this whole framework. So um, it's true that then when we approach statistics about inequality, we should be very skeptical and be aware that they don't tell us that much about reality. But more broadly, knowing that should lead us to question and ultimately reject the whole this whole way of looking at things this whole way of thinking that the fundamental question is what's happening uh, be, uh f- between groups what what is their economic relationship to one another so that is really where we need to start questioning and where we need to reject this whole approach to economic issues with that it's time to bring this podcast to a close If you enjoy it, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit EndTheDebtDraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash DebtDraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.